It's gonna be a long one, everyone. Um, so at the time of recording this, the um, emotional state of the world is in disarray, but we're not gonna talk about that because <laughs> we need to focus on happy things. Um, so I don't really have that much of like an introduction or like, I'm trying to think, I just can't remember anything going on in my life before. <laughs> before this election. <laughs> before um... this started happening. I watched all the the Bachelorettes, but you know that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Claire's a hot mess. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's just like very much representative of the state of our country. This current oh, Bachelorette, yeah. like it's not going the way it's supposed to. Complete another ca- utter chaos. No one knows the truth. <laughs> oh my god, what a uh. disaster! I'm trying to think of like any happy things in my life. Oh, uh, I have I've submitted all of my grad applications, so I am officially done. Yay. Um, and so hopefully in December, I find out that every school I apply to wants to interview me. I'm sure they will. And <laughs> you're going to get into like some Boston University and then move out here. <laughs> and then we can record in person if the coronavirus ever ends. <laughs> yeah, Harvard, call me. Seriously, we might go drive by there. I can uh, drop off a note for you. I want to see the campus. You should just like knock on their door and be like, "Excuse me, I excuse me, Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to recommend my friend." Exactly. Um, Um, But yeah, so that was getting done with that was like a huge sigh of relief. I knew I needed to get it. I needed to get it all done before, like yesterday tuesday because of course you, you I was can't like, get anything done who knows that. what's gonna yeah i'm like my emotional state <laughs> whatever and so i'm so glad that it's done and i'm just like eager eagerly waiting um, what what a weight off your shoulders that's so wonderful and i hope oh, yeah. <laughs> that we get some good news yeah you as guys can, soon as possible you guys can go ahead and start calling me doctor by the way doctor <laughs> Dr. Natalie. Um, that's like literally that's what my dad has been calling me since I told him that's I submitted. So <laughs> yeah, she's like, Dr. Natalie. After I um, graduated grad school, I was, well, I'm very much frustrated that, oh my God, I keep hitting the microphone with my hand. Um, I was very much frustrated that we don't get um, some A type title. of title. Um, so I would like to request that everyone call me Master Rachel. <laughs> I considered that, but then I was it like, seems you know, the fair. historical implications of calling you oh. Master, like, did it really? Oh, wow. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> but uh, I do, I, I, I think two things. One, they should change the title of that degree and you guys should have like a legitimate title that goes with yeah but you are i don't like it i don't know why like something who's in charge of that change it guys i don't know (laughs) who knows at this point but like oh i did i did all that i paid all that money and i can't even put anything in front of my name rude (laughs) i still have a bone to pick with the fact that like women have to choose between like mrs and ms 
or also that there I was just telling Evan this earlier which is shows how boring my life is I wish that there was a gender neutral like version of like Mr. or like Mrs. that you could just use for everybody because like what if like my parents have the same name (laughs) they're both named Chris so So like technically so I actually looked into this not long ago and right now I guess there is like a working one because there are non non non-binary people who don't identify like strictly with either and I guess it's MX yeah well like not only non-binary people but like yeah if you get someone named like Chris Smith I don't know whether to address you Mr. Mrs. Ms. Yeah like I I'm not or like any yeah yeah, any like ambiguous names and it's like I still want to be respectful towards you but I don't want to insult you by using the improper like I don't know what those things are called um what do you what do you think exists out there that we could just use comrade (laughs) i don't know russia (laughs) i don't know i don't know my pal comrade hey there comrade rachel (laughs) yes comrade natalie i like it let's go with it okay All right. Well, um, I think we're still doing the review thing. People, please leave us a review. Oh, yes. I actually wrote it down um, on the back of my (laughs) – I didn't have a post-it note. And, like, now that I'm changing positions, my business cards are no longer, uh, like, usable. So um, in a good way. Um, So I used that to write down the National Center for Victims of Crime. Guys, leave us a review. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pink collar underscore pod. I am so excited about this episode and I hope that everyone else is too and that you tell all your friends because um, I think the Halloween episodes were like a little, little like different for people, but we're, we're back on track now. So like this is good and considering the state of this country i feel like this is just a very uplifting kind of episode like doing the research for this i learned so many things i you know did i even went and did research about like the court system um i like i'm gonna (laughs) i feel like i'm always deviating from whatever you're saying oh so i so mine is like more or less our, our topic which we'll introduce in a second but Mine is kind of heavy, like kind of, yeah, it's it's kind of heavy, but I think there is like a more or less like positive kind of ending. Okay. <laughs> Let's hope. I don't know. We'll I see. can't wait to get depressed. <laughs> so we are doing, this was Natalie's idea and something we've been kind of kicking back and forth for a while, but we decided to do kind of like an elections voting women's suffrage 
suffrage. So, like, yeah, voting rights. Basically. Voting rights. Voting rights. Yeah. That that better captures everything. For sure. And so basically, just women who, in their efforts to vote, you know, get or get the right to vote or suffrage, um, somehow were arrested or had to face the legal system one way or another. And so, I do think it's a really cool episode and very like on topic for what we're going it's, through in America It's another right good now. crimes, right? <laughs> I can't remember. What was our uh, last yeah, good yeah. crimes? That was so long ago. Or maybe it was yesterday. Um, I honestly don't remember. <laughs> our last good crimes? I don't know. I feel like it's been a while. Um, Jane well, Fonda you had, was you had your You had your psychic who was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I kept that. We did have like a, a good... I don't remember... Oh, was it, um, it was like the civil, I did the civil war woman. Uh, oh, yeah. Women who like, uh, who broke the law to get you, into the army. Yeah. You had like the, you had like the white Mulan or not Mulan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mulan. Yeah. 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 <laughs> she like dressed up as all these different things. She was, she was hardcore. Yeah. And then my person, um, I think was, she like sued for her freedom, which was awesome. Yes. So. Oh, that was also great. That was also good. So this is just yes. building on that. For sure. Just more good crimes. (laughs) And so uh, you are up to go first. Oh, boy. I was kind (laughs) of hoping that you would go first if yours is more depressing, but that's that's all right. I can if you want. We can switch it up. (laughs) Or I can, like, lift us up, and then you can just, like, smash it down. down, Which is basically what it was like growing up in my household as a child. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Just kidding. So today, I wanted to talk about the story of a national treasure, Susan B. Anthony. Uh, So little known fact, the B in Susan B. Anthony stands for bad B. (laughs) I'm kidding. What does it really stand for? Burton? Bronwell. Um, So Susan Bronwell. Brown, Brown, Brownell? Brown... Now I'm second-guessing myself. Um, Susan Brownell Anthony, she was born on February 15th, um, so, like, oh, yeah. right near your birthday, um, in the town, just, mm, like, just barely off, this. right? You're just incorrect. 13th, correct? God. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm a terrible friend! Oh, no! Incorrect. What is it, the 11th? The 10th. <laughs> the 10th. Jeez. 17th. 10th. Oh my god! Okay, just seventh. Okay, I was close. Seventh. It's okay. We're fine. Yours is in my phone. That down. I know I have written down somewhere, but (laughs) also I am a horrible person, and I'm like, it's six months until my birthday. It's one month until my birthday. Don't forget my birthday in a week. So, no one can forget my birthday. Um. Anyway, so Susan was the second child out of seven siblings, and as a second sibling myself, I can assure you that second siblings are the best. Um, I I think that contributed a lot to, you know, the type of person that she ended up being. Um, You know, second siblings, just great, 10 out of 10. Um, So six years after she was born, her family moved to Battenville, New York, and in 1838, her father, Daniel Anthony, took Susan and her sister, Gilma... G-U-E-L-M-A. I'm so sorry, Gilma. 
out of school. Why are you know, laughing? Just, I'm so sorry. I, I really like that. Their family sorry, was hit. Ahead. I'm done. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, kind of outdated. I was just going to say, while you so rudely laughed, that their family was hit hard by the Depression of 1837, and Daniel was forced to declare bankruptcy. It was so bad that the family lost their home. But eventually, the Anthony family moved to good old Rochester, New York, um, semi-hometown of my boyfriend. So, you know, I'm a kind of Rochester <sighs> An expert, pro yeah. myself, having been there so many times. Um, yeah, Rochester has this disgusting delicacy that I might have talked about before called a no. garbage plate. Um, it's like hamburgers and or hot dogs. And they have this like they have white hot dogs there what is that's like a thing and do you know what a white hot dog looks like no i'm not even gonna no it's disgusting okay but then they have like this meat sauce that's like nutmeg-y like cinnamon-y grossness like and so they put inspired (laughs) like this food i don't know did someone like throw up on a plate and they were like hmm this is like so it's like hot dogs and or hamburgers uh like tater tots or home fries weird cinnamon nutmeg meat sauce definitely looks like a heart and mac salad mac salad so like mayonnaise pasta i don't understand i have high standards coming from the home of deep dish pizza so that is just like (laughs) disturbing to me but at least there was one good thing that came out of rochester new york that being susan b anthony um so her family <laughs> moved <laughs> from a home to a home near the erie canal their farm was located on brooks avenue and it would later become a meeting place for anti-slavery activists including frederick Douglass. um so susan yeah susan b anthony and frederick Douglass. uh frederick Douglass. that's where he started his newspaper was in uh rochester new york dope um so they're both, like, I think they have, like, a bridge both named after them or something. Um, but Susan started teaching a job at Kanahawari Academy. It's, like, one of those weird New York names. Mm-hmm. Um, guess what her annual salary was? Mind $5. you, this is, like, the 1800s. I mean, close. It was $110. Um, it, you might think you know, oh, the inflation rates, they've gone up, no big deal. Um, but still, $110 would be the equivalent of $3,670.62 in today's dollars. Jesus. I mean, to be fair, like, a house back then was, like, half a penny, so. I guess, but still, $110? <laughs> yeah, that is ridiculous. Ugh. Well, teachers are still, have been underpaid, still underpaid. Anyway, so a few years later, Susan traveled to Seneca Falls, New York, to attend an anti-slavery convention. From there, Susan started attending more conferences and pushed hard for the rights of women and blacks. She circulated petitions for married women's property rights and women's suffrage, but she was refused to speak um, at the Capitol, at the Smithsonian, um, in general was not really well respected by Washington, D.C., But Susan didn't let this get her down. She was going to get her message across no matter what it took. So she started to campaign for women's suffrage in Mayville, Chautauqua County. Um, I don't know if I finished that sentence. 
I think I was starting to list out all the places and then I had a brain fart. Anyway, um, so she would travel to like all these different places and she would um, speak all on her own, just going out there, which I think is especially brave for a woman of that time to, to be so bold. Um, in 1856, Susan became an agent for the American Anti-Slavery Society. And just a year later at the New York State Teachers Convention in Binghamton, Susan presented the radical idea that education should be provided for women and black people. Unbelievable. Susan can, what an idea. I, it's, it's appalling to think of even like to this day how, you know, shocking that is. <laughs> but um, Susan continued to gain momentum and was building up to even bigger events. She was starting a revolution. In 1869, Susan called the first women's suffrage convention in Washington, D.C. And in 1872, Susan B. Anthony was arrested for voting in the front parlor of 7 Madison Street. Um, so she was indicted on November 18th in Albany. I will describe this more in detail in just a second. But she had actually planned, uh, started her plan to vote three years before she dropped her ballot off in the ballot box for the first time. There I'm was a lot of new- Sorry, I'm surprised no, go ahead. that they didn't think she was a witch. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Like, why wouldn't they assume that she was a witch? I don't don't know, but whatever. Uh, Well, it it wasn't the 1600s, Natalie. It was the 1800s. So, you know, they're much more uh, civilized. Same time period in my my head, but whatever. (laughs) It's like 200 years apart. Whatever. I mean, yeah, there were probably people who thought she was a witch. Let's be real. (laughs) She might have been. I don't know. More power to her if she was. Um, so there was a law in New York that required legal voters to reside for 30 days in New York um, before the election in the district they planned to vote in. So Susan believed she was allowed to vote under the recently adopted 14th Amendment, which stated all persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States. So by that logic, women should be logically allowed to vote. Or so she thought. Some people might have disagreed. Um, On November 1st in 1872, Susan and her three sisters banded together and headed to a voter registration office set up in a barber shop. Her and her sisters were part of a much larger group of women that had organized to register in Rochester, New York. In total, there were about 50 women. So as Susan and her sisters entered the barber shop, they saw three young men sitting there. They were serving as the registrars. Susan walked right on up to these jabronis and demanded that they register her as a voter. The men, of course, refused. But Susan wasn't going to back down without a fight. She quoted the 14th Amendment and also an article in the New York Constitution that addressed voting. In these documents, there was no sex qualification. Again, the men were like, I don't think so. And Susan exclaimed, if you refuse our rights as citizens, I will bring charges against you in criminal court, and I will sue each of you personally for large exemplary damages. (laughs) This reminds me of, oh my god, this is so funny, my little sister, I feel like when she was like five years old, she like learned, I don't even think she knew what it meant, because I didn't know what it meant, she like learned to say that she should sue someone if they wronged her. So, like, this little five-year-old, if you, like, did something wrong, she's like, I'm going to sue you. But, I mean, 
it's not similar at all. Susan totally had had the right. Um, I will say, though she is 100% in the right, like it, that <laughs> I'm going to sue each of you personally, was a very Karen-y response. <laughs> but it, okay, but it worked. Hey, I, I support it, you know. It worked. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. These men were just like pawns in the larger game. Um, but still, they were stunned. Uh, I guess they ran out of reasons to keep saying no, and they were also uh, scared. <laughs> they reached out to the supervisor of elections, Daniel Warner, who was like, uh, I guess you should let them vote. Daniel believed if they refused to register these women, that they would be heavily penalized to the full extent of the law. So after a full hour of debating, the men finally allowed Susan and her crew to register. 14 women had successfully registered to vote that day. The press were quickly alerted, and a bunch of snowflake men were triggered. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like how I'm bringing, like, modern slang? Yeah, it's very... And so, like, this old-timey, I hope it really appeals to the kids. (laughs) Good job. The Gen Zs will love it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They believe that the voting inspectors should be arrested for complying with the women's demand. The Rochester Union and Advertiser, I guess newspaper of some sort, stated, Citizenship no more carries the right to vote than it carries the power to fly to the moon. If these women in the eighth word were to uh, vote, they should be challenged. And if they take oaths and the inspectors receive and deposit their ballots, they should all be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Joke's on you because we went to the moon many years later um uh so on november 5th the polls opened at the west end news depot susan and about seven or eight other women were ready to go they lined up to deposit their votes and the inspectors voted two to one to accept their votes later inspector et marsh said he felt very conflicted about what to do um, they were afraid of either being prosecuted for accepting the ballots or prosecuted for not accepting the ballots. So it wasn't like a question of like, oh, this is the right thing to do, but I'm afraid I'm going to get prosecuted for it. He was just trying to figure out what choice would save his hide. Yeah. Which is whatever. Um He said, we were expected to make an infallible decision inside of two days of a question in which some of the best minds in the country are divided. Which, back then, how great were their minds, really? I'm just saying. Yeah, those, the best minds had to make that decision. Also, E.T., that's a name for an alien. Like, E.T., okay. Okay. Um... Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of colorful commentary. Just, just wait. Um, so Susan had cast her vote for U.S. Grant and other Republicans because at the time, the Republican Party had promised to give the, dema- or give the demands of women a respectful hearing. So in this case, the Democrats and Republicans are kind of flip-flopped mm-hmm. where... Um, Susan, she wrote to a fellow suffragist and close friend, uh, her close friend, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, later that day. Yeah, we'll probably cover her in an episode eventually. Um, If she was arrested, I don't know. At some point, probably. 
she was making moves. She probably got arrested. Um, anyway, the so she uh, Susan wrote the Democratic Party is out against the strong, and that scared the Dems on the registry board. How I wish you were here to write up the funny things said and done. When the Democrats said my vote should not go in the box, one Republican said to the other, "What do you say, Marsh? I say put it in." So do I," said Jones, and. We'll fight it out on this line if it takes all winter. Um, but I'm awful tired. For five days, I have been on the constant run, but to splendid purpose. So, all right, I hope you voted too. Which just was, like, comforting to read because I felt like she was, like, writing a letter to me about, like, oh, I hope you voted. And I was like, yeah, I did, Susan. <laughs> Maybe in, in my mind, we're, like, friends or something. I don't know. Um, so women voting in Rochester was a hot topic of discussion. The papers were talking about the pros and cons every day. Behind the curtain, Susan was preparing with the lawyers for, with her lawyers for an inevitable lawsuit. A Democratic poll watcher, Sylvester Lewis, aka Angry Salt Man, you facturer, filed a complaint against Susan for casting an illegal vote. U.S. Commissioner William C. Storrs issued a warrant for Susan's arrest on November 14th. She was charged for voting in an election without having the right to vote, which carried a maximum penalty of $500 or three years in prison. Which, like, how fair is that penalty if it would take you five years of working to pay it off? Yeah. Not so much. Um, so a few days had went by before Susan was actually arrested. William needed time to discuss the possible prosecution with the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of New York. Finally, on November 18th, a U.S. deputy marshal showed up to the Anthony home in Rochester, where the door was answered by one of Susan's sisters. They politely asked for Susan, who knew the arrest was coming. Supposedly, the commissioner had called her uh, to just, like, get her to come into his office. And Susan replied, I sent word to him that I had no social acquaintance with him and didn't wish to call on him. Basically, you're not my friend, so no. <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like, in her mind, she was... I don't know if I could, like, phrase it in today's language, but I'm not going to do because it's, like, a clean podcast. Um, but we know... I have no idea how you would phrase that. <laughs> I just think of a lot of words with Fs in them. Um, oh, gotcha. Just in my mind. But we knew uh, what went down when when he came based on Susan's description later. That was she delivered um, a speech and talked about the meeting in the National Suffrage Association meeting thing. Um, so she said that the deputy marshal, uh, that was a guy who came to grab her, was wearing a beaver hat and kid gloves, which she noted were paid by taxes gathered from women. Can I just point out the irony of this guy wearing a beaver hat when, like, what is it many years... Hat? See, I... Assume it's a hat made from like beaver skin, oh, I was like, Is that or like a hat you know those hats like with like the raccoon tail, like maybe it's that like with a beaver tail. But what my mind instantly went to was like an innuendo of like beaver, and that made me think of like the vagina hats <sighs> that people. Well, you know how what? like people in the women's march were wearing the vagina hats, oh. the p-word hats. Oh, the vagina. So I thought it was funny that he was wearing, like, a beaver hat because that's, like, a slang term for women's anatomy. And then... <laughs> Thanks for breaking it down for me because I really... <laughs> was just over my head. Well, no, that's good. It's, that's what the first thing I thought of. But I feel like that means my mind's in the gutter. Um, but I was like, oh, beaver hat. Ha ha. Oh, women are wearing the P word hats. I just sent you a picture of a beaver hat. Okay. 
Uh, let's see. My phone's slow. It's going to take me a second, probably. Should I keep going? <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Now I was just in a picture of, like, it's like a stuffed animal beaver. It's a beaver Aww. Hat. It's cute. It's so cute. I hope that's what he was wearing. I feel like not, though. The um, other ones are basically the same, just without the face. <laughs> so. Oh. Whatever. Okay. Boring. It's cute. Um... So Beaver Hat Man sat down and was like, oh, the weather is nice. And he hemmed and he hawed. And uh, Susan, or he was finally like, okay, uh, so William wanted me to arrest you. And Susan asked if this was how they arrested men. And he said no. So then Susan stuck out her wrists and demanded to be arrested in a proper fashion. Susan's sister wanted to go with her. So the man suggested that uh, the two of them head out first, and, and he would just follow up the back. And Susan was like, no, if I have to go, you're taking me. So they loaded, like, what kind of, like, cop, I guess this is, he would be like, uh, law enforcement. Would be like, there. oh, okay, you you two go, and I'll just follow up from behind you. I'll put you in this Uber, uh, and I'll just follow you to the station. You know, like, what kind of, <laughs> ugh. Anyway, so Susan was like, No you you're taking me um so they loaded up in a horse-drawn car and the man took out his pocketbook to pay fare he assured susan that he was required to pay the fare of any criminal he arrested and susan would later say that this was the first cent's worth that she ever had from uncle sam (laughs) she's just like there she's got all the like witty commentary i i love it she's basically more like gilmore Yeah, seriously. Um, So when Susan arrived at the commissioner's office, she was placed in the same dingy little room where they used to place slaves in the olden days who had escaped from their masters. Um, Upon arrival, Susan learned that the 14 other women who cast their ballots and the ballot inspectors who authorized their votes had also been arrested. Susan did not enter a plea at the time of her arrest, and the commissioner scheduled a preliminary examination at the end of November. Preliminary hearings, uh, here's some, like, facts that I had to look up, uh, because I'm, like, learning, you know. Um, Preliminary hearings are used uh, before criminal trials that might be controversial, so they usually help determine if there's enough evidence to indict a suspect. Um, So during that trial, Susan was questioned by her lawyer john van Voorhees. isn't that which, like, like the same as like a grand jury no that's different and i'm oh. going to explain that more bad. it's Go very ahead. exciting <laughs> just just you wait um so through his questioning he was trying to establish that susan believed she had the legal right to vote so she wasn't violating the 1870 enforcement act Um, The act only prohibited willful and knowing illegal votes. And Susan made it pretty clear that she did not have a particle of doubt in her right to vote. But the case was adjourned to December 23rd. They met again in December, and the commissioner concluded that Susan had probably broken the law. And seeing how biased he was, I'm not, I wasn't surprised at all to to read that. Um, I also like that it's probably. It's like, maybe, I don't know. She probably broke the law. Whatever, man. Uh, Susan refused bail, so she was held in the custody of the deputy marshal until the grand jury was able to meet in January. Um, So if you are like me and don't know much about the legal system, 
The purpose of a grand jury is to, to decide whether or not to bring criminal charges against a potential defendant. Gotcha. It's most, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's most commonly reserved for serious felonies. The members of the jury might be called for months at a time, but unlike a traditional jury duty, they may only attend a few days out of the month. Uh, grand juries also differ in size. They can include 6 to 23 people versus the 6 to 12 people in a regular jury. Uh, grand juries are also much more chill than regular courtroom proceedings. There's no judge and there are no lawyers except for the prosecutor. The jury has a broad range of what evidence uh, they can... Uh, last my spot. Broad range of evidence or testimony that can be seen. So the grand jury proceedings, they're also kept confidential in the majority of trials. So this allows witnesses to speak freely and without fear of retaliation. It also protects the reputation of the defendant if the jury does not inside, decide to indict. Additionally, there doesn't ha or there doesn't need to be a unanimous decision from all members to indict. It can require two-thirds or three-fourths majority, depending on what jurisdiction you're in. And even if the grand jury decides not to indict, a prosecutor can still decide to bring the case to trial if they just, like, believe that they should or whatever. I don't know. Um, I will s give a quick shout-out to the prosecutor's podcast. It's two lawyers that do the podcast. I don't remember which episode it was, but they went into depth about the grand jury and that, like, I didn't even realize there was a difference, so then that prompted me to go in and do some more research myself. So definitely check their podcast out if you're interested in learning more about the law, but hopefully that was a good enough explanation to get you through. And if there are any mistakes, uh, call me out. I don't know. Um, so our buddy, the commissioner, thought that Susan had violated the law. Susan saw this as a reason to file for a petition for writ of habeas corpus. Um, so this is used to bring a prisoner or detainee. So, it, for example, it could also be someone who's institutionalized for, um, you know, mental illness before the court to determine if their imprisonment or detention is lawful. I think, isn't it? In Legally Blonde, where she, like, makes a reference to the writ of habeas corpus. I'm sure she wasn't using it correctly. I'm going to be but... honest with you. I've never really seen Legally Blonde. Okay. <laughs> That's my culture, Natalie. Actually, Sorry. It's, it's, like, it's an okay movie. It's pretty funny. If there's any Legally Blonde fans out there. I've seen parts of it, but whatever. Keep going. I'm, in I'm into the see... story. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> Um, so Susan felt very confident and was backed by many supporters who started sending in letters with contributions to her defense fund. In early January, Susan was hard at work sending hundreds of papers about her arrest to her suffragist friends and politicians. Susan's attorney, I think she had like a couple different attorneys throughout this, but so her attorney, Henry Selden, requested a U.S. district judge in Albany to issue the, the writ of habeas corpus, but he declined the request um, so that request all allowed Susan to go to the Supreme Court. I don't know what I just wrote. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> oh, you can tell that my brain is like totally there right now. Um, so Whatever, moving on. At this time, Susan's bail was raised from $500 to $1,000. And this didn't matter to Susan. She still refused to pay. And she was refusing to pay along the lines of, like, I didn't do anything wrong, so why would I pay bail? 
but her lawyer then actually took money from his own bank account to pay Susan's bail. And this meant Susan would lose her opportunity to get her case before the Supreme Court. I think that's what I was trying to say earlier. She was basically trying to get her case to go through the Supreme Court so that they would rule that this was unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Um, Susan was really upset and demanded that Henry explain himself. Henry said, I could not see a lady I respected put in jail. But like Henry. Kind of sexist. Like, yeah, it was like savior e. Yeah, you know? like women like have savory. every right to suffer in jail if they want to. Yeah, it was her choice, and she didn't. She, well, that it it also screwed up her plan exactly. because she was making calculated moves so that she could get her case seen before the Supreme Court. So really, this dude was just like messing up her trajectory. But whatever, I think that she couldn't like take the money back. So. Even though Susan was upset, she still had an upcoming trial to prepare for. On January 24th of 1873, the grand jury, which consisted of 20 men, white men, I'm sure, um, they decided to indict Susan. They believed that she knowingly and unlawfully cast her vote since she was a person of the female sex. (sighs) Thanks, guys. That's great. Um... Susan had four months to prepare for her next trial, and she took this as an opportunity to get out in Rochester and the surrounding counties to educate people on the issue of women's suffrage. She visited 29 post office districts in Monroe County, which Monroe County is... I don't think Evan's parents technically live in Monroe County, but, like, their street is literally the county line. Hmm. So she was probably in that neck of the woods. I was trying to figure out if she like visited anywhere there specifically but i couldn't find anything because i think it was just too long ago but she was there so you know i am just blessed to know that i've been kind of in the same area that susan b anthony's been in um it's very exciting to me (laughs) um so she during her trial or no while she was giving these speeches she dressed in a gray silk dress with a white lace collar she kept her hair twisted into a tight knot so she was like very stylish. Um, she argued that natural law and the proper interpretation um, of the Civil War amendments gave women the right to vote. That's like th- what she was saying throughout this entire time is like, this law allows me to vote. I'm not doing anything illegal. All women should be allowed to vote. You people are crazy. So Susan and her lawyers felt a little nervous going into her trial as the U.S. Supreme Court's first two major interpretations of the Civil War amendments rejected the claims of the cases presented. In the New York Times, an editorial stated that Susan was extremely unlikely to win. Which, like, New York Times, I understand that it's an editorial, but come on, come on. Uh, This brings us to the trial. Susan showed up rocking a new bonnet with blue silk and draped with a veil. The courtroom was packed. People traveled from all over New York to see the trial. Judge Ward Hunt was sitting behind the bench. Susan would later describe him as small-brained and pale-faced. So you can already tell how this is going to go. But Susan's lawyer argued that even if the 14th Amendment interpretation didn't make Susan's vote legal, she could not be prosecuted because she truly believed that her vote was legal. Which I feel like Susan would disagree with that. It sounds like, again, that there was just kind of like that savior complex of like, I'm still trying to protect you, even though, like, 
there's no world where Susan would agree that this her vote was illegal. So mm-hmm. after all of the arguments, Judge Hunt took a note out of his pocket. It was presumed that he wrote his opinion before the trial even started. <laughs> I'm so mad. Surprise, um, surprise. Exactly. Small brained, pale faced, you you know, you know the drill. It's like um, when it's he, like when a Senate like already decides that they're gonna confirm a Supreme Court justice before even doing a hearing. It's crazy. <laughs> can't imagine what that's like. Um but he said he believed Susan knew she was casting an illegal vote and that the fourteenth Amendment did not give women the right to vote. He believed the jury should be directed to find Susan guilty. And Susan was pissed. Rightfully so. Susan's lawyer argued for a new trial the next day on belief that Susan's right to a trial uh, by jury had been violated. In her case, the jury in the trial wasn't even allowed to speak. Um, So Susan was understandably very upset. She had this long speech that she was trying to deliver, you know, talking about her rights and her all of her, you know, opinions, which I guess are just facts because women should be allowed to vote and judge hunt repeatedly interrupted saying the court cannot allow the prisoner to go on and the prisoner must sit down the court cannot allow it just like all these nonsense lines i despise this man but in the end judge hunt said the court would not order her committed until her fine was paid susan of course refused to pay her fine so the case could not move to a higher court through the appeal process. Uh, the government didn't try too hard to collect her money, um, so she she had tried to remit the fine, but nothing happened there either. So again, it seemed, uh, you know, they knew that Susan was never going to pay the fine, and the only way that she could move up in the courts was by paying the fine. So it was just kind of like a lose-lose situation. But that brings us to the present day. Trump pardoned Susan this year, exclaiming you know oh she was never pardoned i don't know what that accent was that was like really wrong i'm not going to try to do an impression here um but he's like oh why did it take so long (laughs) so here's the thing susan did not believe she broke the law and she probably wouldn't have wanted to be pardoned for that reason and like the happy ending to this and definitely not by that man there's no universe where she would ever accept that. But also, I think that other politicians, you know, recognized that, you know, Susan B. Anthony probably would not have wanted that. So that's that's probably why it hasn't happened yet. And this person was just unintelligent enough to, like, not kind of put two and two together. But anyway, so the happy ending in all this is the Susan B. Anthony Museum ended up declining the pardon. <laughs> like... <laughs> How awful do you have to be that the Susan B. Anthony Museum's like, mm, no thanks. I respect it. <laughs> um, so Deborah L. Hughes, the executive director of the museum, wrote in a statement. Um, Anthony wrote in her diary in 1873 that her trial for voting was the greatest outrage history has ever witnessed. She was not allowed to speak as a witness in her own defense because she was a woman. At the conclusion of arguments, Judge Hunt dismissed the jury and pronounced her guilty. She was outraged to be denied a trial by jury. She proclaimed, I shall never pay a dollar of your unjust penalty. To pay would have 
been to validate the proceedings. To pardon Susanie, Anthony does the same. So, like, mic drop. Done. <laughs> and that is the case of the arrest of Susanie, Anthony. Yay, girl. That was I, a I, lot. That but was like, a lot. What an I adventure. What oh, a yeah. roller coaster. I have a newfound respect for Susan B. Anthony. Oh, I forgot. I almost forgot to share this fun fact. Oh my gosh. Evan would have been so disappointed. So Evan told me that in Rochester, which is where Susan B. Anthony's grave is located, that um, after elections, women will go to her grave and put their I voted sticker on her grave. So it'll be like covered in I voted stickers. Oh, that's cool. I would like to do that one day, except I don't know that I'll ever vote in New York. I mean, I'll save a sticker and then take, just bring exactly. it. <laughs> I respect that. That would be cool. No, um, I don't, like, what else is there to be said about Susan B. Anthony's, like, I, I want to say badassness, but greatness. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could let that slide. Like, that is so much deserved. Uh, yeah, I wish that I would have learned more about this trial in, in school and just mm-hmm. how incredible and passionate she was. And she was just so... I think a lot of people like to just be like, oh, well, we're just following the laws. And Susan took that route of being like, yes, I am following the law. Like, and that she never backed down from from that stance is just. Yeah. <sighs> there are some similarities to my case, um, but. I'm not, as, not as exciting and i don't think i'm gonna have this fun colorful commentary as you so oh <laughs> well i i will say that my i feel like a lot of the colorful commentary came from susan herself so just like <laughs> quotes quotes and stuff but um all right bring us down natalie all right guys so i'm ready to cry this so yeah fair warning uh this for me at least it's a little emotional like i definitely cried a little i'm also an emotional person but i like cried a little when i was writing it um and so if you guys feel like tuning out that is your prerogative no i feel like you should listen because this is not something that you learn about in school at least not in the united states and probably nowhere else and so um i just feel like it's really important for this woman's story to be told um and so i am doing the case of fanny lou hamer Uh, who is an African-American voting and women's rights activist and civil rights leader. Um, So I'm going to like give you some background into um, Fanny's like early life, because I think a lot of the things that she experienced from like childhood um, up until she started getting involved in the um, like voting rights movement for um, African-Americans and African-American women um, was like, it's informed by a lot of what she went through. And so on October 6th, 1917, Fannie Lou Hamer was born Fannie Lou Townsend in Montgomery County, Mississippi, I believe. I just wrote Montgomery County. And so her parents, James and Ella Townsend, actually had 20 children, of which Fannie was the youngest. Uh, Wait, one woman had 20 children? I mean, look at the Duggars. It's not not unsurprising. (laughs) Um, and so she was, she was the youngest. And so just uh, like a sheer numbers game, like regardless of when her mom started having children, like by the time Fanny came around, her parents had to have been older, you know? Oh my gosh. That is like, 
Good for, like, what a woman. That terrifies me. I can't even comprehend having one of those. <laughs> Can you imagine 20 children? Yeah. I mean, I know back then that people had more children, but... 20? Oh my god, I couldn't even remember all my siblings' names. Like, oh, for sure. That's too much. Like, to be fair, like, I remember I asked my mom how many siblings my dad had, and she was like, a couple dozen, so... <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, And I doubt... Like, I mean, I don't know if he can name all of his siblings. So it happens. That said, my grandmother didn't have all of them. Like, Yeah, I I would hope not for, like, her sake. Like, that's Um, just too much for one body to to make. That's true. But more power to Ella Townsend for bringing 20 children into the world. Um, I don't know, like, how many, like, survived to, like, adulthood, but... Yeah, well, family. yeah, it's suppressing. Let's not get into that. I mean, that. it's you know, it's just nineteen seventeen. Like that's what happens yes. to people. Um, and so, yes. so yeah, but Fanny still. was the youngest, and um, in her early life, the family actually had animal stock. So you know, animals that they were raising, through which they actually were able to make a living. So uh, whether that means like selling like you know the young or like chicken eggs, I don't know. But um, they were able to kind of be a bit self sufficient. Um, However, at some point... Well, they had 20 children. That's like a full, like, <laughs> staff for free. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, however, at some point, many uh, many of their animals were mysteriously poisoned, presumably by a local um, known racist white man. Surprise, surprise. Um, and so that meant in 1919, the family had no choice um, because now they needed a way to survive. So they had to move to another county in Mississippi and work as sharecroppers on W.D. Marlowe's plantation. And so that just... Like, it's heartbreaking that, you know, they were able to, like, be self-sufficient, but some racist person decided to, like, kill their stock and they had to go be basically, I don't know, glorified, like, slaves, kind of. I'm sure they were getting paid, but not enough. Um, And so from six years old on, Fanny picked cotton alongside her parents and her siblings. Uh, Fanny did go to school up until the age of 12 when she had to um, drop out. Drop out. Uh, so despite excelling in like reading and spelling, she um, needed to help support her aging parents. And so she tried to supplement her education by reading the Bible, which I think is awesome for her um, to just like what other reading material do you, she probably had access to. So that was cool. And so by the time she was 13, she was actually living with polio, um, but she was still somehow managing to pick up to 300 pounds of cotton each day. Um, speaking for myself, I probably would like maybe get a pound. Like I'm, I don't have that kind of work ethic, at least not for physical labor. So, oh man. Um, and so in 1944, after learning that Fanny was exceptionally literate, the plantation owner actually changed her position so that she could work as the plantation's time and record keeper. And so that is going to be important later. Um, and so soon after she uh, moved up to this new position, she married Perry Pap Hamer. Um, and she continued to work on that plantation for the next 18 years. In the 1950s, Fanny became involved with the civil rights movement. Uh, Fanny and Pap longed to start a family of their own. However, Fanny was diagnosed with a benign uterine tumor. Once removed, she should have been able to conceive. However, 
During the operation to remove her tumor, the white doctor conducting the surgery decided to commit medical assault by removing Fanny's otherwise healthy uterus altogether. Forced sterilization was a common assault against poor black women in Mississippi at the time. And most recently, forced sterilization has been inflicted on women currently in U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, um, uh, custody (coughs) under Donald Trump's administration. Just putting that out there. It's a fact. Um, And so um, just disappointing to see that certain things haven't changed. Um, Anyway, Fanny and Pap did not let this egregious act of racist violence stop them from pursuing their dream of becoming parents. And so they adopted two daughters, which I think is awesome that they were able to do that. Um, unfortunately, oh God, one of... I love that so much. Yeah. Unfortunately, one of their daughters would later die of internal hemorrhage because a local hospital denied her admission or treatment in retaliation for Fanny's... Um, civil rights activism so oh my welcome to the 1900s the amount of trauma that people had to go go through through just yeah like probably on a daily basis not to say that people today don't go through trauma on a daily basis but things like that oh my gosh it's just so hard to wrap your brain around yeah and i mean it speaks a lot to the almost inherent resilience that um, like the black community and black women especially like I guess are armed with in some way it's almost like a generational or an intergenerational like inheritance of like this oh, resilience absolutely. Uh, there's this book that I just started to the audiobook that I started to listen to because you know I don't read um, <laughs> it's called uh, it's by Damon Young and it's called what doesn't kill you makes you blacker and so I don't know I just think I'm writing a, that down Damon. Just, how do you spell Damon? D-A-M-O-N. Um, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And so, I mean, just that title alone, I think, really speaks to um, a lot of generational experiences for uh, the black community. So moving on, in August of 1962, Fanny met with members or volunteers from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which I will go on to uh, referred to as the SNCC. And so though, for those unfamiliar with the N- SNCC by name, they were the organizing body responsible for freedom rights, peaceful sit-ins, um, and the March on Washington, where um, Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Um, and the late and great John Lewis, um, who died um, not too long ago um would eventually actually become this organization's chairperson which yeah so um anyway when fanny met with the sncc this was the first time that she learned that she actually had a constitutional right to vote and so this woman was born in 1917 and in 1962 was the first time she ever knew that she had a right to vote so that's it was like not that's what frustrates me with people it's like it wasn't that long ago that a majority, like a big group, not majority, but like a whole group of people was like not aware of, of their rights to vote or that there was there was like um, things in place in a, that made it yeah. very challenging for people to vote. And so like I kind of I just wrote this in here. So like for a quick history of voting rights, which obviously Rachel just kind of gave us a little um, kind of glimpse into some um, part of it. But a lot of us are, I think, 
in part to like mainstream feminism a little bit, we're like led to believe that all women got the right to vote in 1920. And the unfortunate reality is that at the time, due in part to like rampant racism and systematic oppression, the 19th, Am- the 19th Amendment did not actually secure the right to vote for all women, especially um, poor and non-white women. And so um, there was nothing in place, like sure, on paper, these people have the right to vote, but there is nothing in place that basically said it is illegal to stop people to vote. And it nothing really... Um, And so nothing really, like, I guess, stopped states um, from, like, being allowed to impose outlandish voter intimidation um, tactics and voter suppression tactics. And so those things can include anything from, you know, like, poll taxes, literacy tests, to literally hanging people. Um, So... Okay. Yeah. And so, um, so, yeah, even though we say, like, women got the right to vote in 1920 black women didn't really get the right to vote until the voting rights the voting rights act of 1965 was signed and well it's like my my dad was born in 1961 so this happened within his lifetime my like my parents were born in 1964 so yeah like it's insane that your your grandparents like would have not been allowed to, to vote well i remember i was talking with my grandma and i'm like grandma like was segregation a thing when you were a kid and she was telling me all about it and i'm like it's disgusting that like someone i know like someone in my family or like that there are people alive that were still alive well that anyone was alive while this was happening but like it really wasn't that long ago and if you consider the effects of um discrimination on kind of uh you know uh oh what's the word i'm looking for like family lines, you know, mm-hmm. if you have a really rich family member that's or ancestor that sets you up for success in life, but if you have family members who are heavily discriminated against and weren't given the same opportunities as everyone else, that's going to potentially affect your family line for generations to come exactly it's like if you're thinking about like it it is a race, like a lot of the significant portion of this population um started the race really early and we just started it yesterday and we're Mm -hmm. told and like and we're being told like it's our fault that we're not that we haven't caught up you know like it doesn't really make sense not to bring everybody down but the reality of our world um so um yeah so the voting rights act of 1965 um keep in mind that right now we're talking about 1962 and so nothing was really stopping um people from stopping fanny um, to vote. And so wanting to, despite that, she wanted to, um, exercise her legal right as an American to pick the officials elected into office. So Fannie became even more involved in the voting rights movement by taking direct political action. So that same day that she found out that she had a legal right to vote, Fannie traveled to Indianola, Mississippi with several other activists with the intention of registering to vote. And so, unfortunately, there were racist tests in place, um, known as literacy tests, um, to keep Black people from voting. This particular test that Fannie had to take required her to explain de facto laws. Keep in mind, and I'm going to like reiterate this multiple times, this is a woman who was so literate that a large plantation owner moved her into the role of timekeeper and bookkeeper. And yet this test is so, like, like, what even we're not, is a de facto law? I don't even know. Like a law that's just 
like I'm gonna be. I would fail that. I would fail that. Yeah, hundred percent for real. Like, (laughs) come on. And so, of course, unsurprisingly, Fanny um, was rejected because she couldn't. Like, what the hell is a de facto law? And so she would later actually recall, um, quote, I know as I know as much about a de actually she said, I know as much about a facto law as a horse knows about Christmas Day. And so like she's like, I mean, like how like how she's supposed to what what is that? Like anyway, um, maybe Becca can write in and tell us what a de facto yeah, law Becca, is. What's um, a de facto law? And so when she returned home, she was met by the plantation plantation owner, quote, Raisin Cane. And so I actually had to look that up. And so that essentially means raising hell. Um, letting her know that she There's better... like chicken restaurants named Raisin Cane's. Yeah, there is. There's one like here. We're also, side note, we're getting an in and out, which I'm like, what? Very surprised. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> it's like right next to the Raisin Cane's, which is why I brought it up. I feel like in and outs kind of overrated. I've never, I've never had it, but it looked good. It's like Chick-fil-A. So I, I feel like everyone it. freaks out for Chick-fil-A. True, true. And I had it, and I was, like, not impressed. But also, I'm a vegetarian now, I so. I don't even like chicken. Like Who that. can really trust my opinion <laughs> on these matters? Um. Anyway, so, yeah. So, by the time she got home, like, her, uh, like, the plantation owner, her boss, had already, like, heard the news that Fanny was trying to register to vote and so he was raised in hell and he basically let her know that she needs to withdraw her application for voter registration um fanny was like um i wasn't trying to register you i was trying to register myself so (laughs) why is that your business um and so her boss fired her that day and kicked her off of the plantation but in an extreme act of cruelty required her husband to stay on the plantation until the end of the harvest. And so she was separated from her spouse. And so at this point, Fanny now had a huge target on her back. The clan was literally after her. And so she spent the next several days moving between homes in the dark of night to hide from racist mobs that were looking for her. Unfortunately, on September 10th, she was located and shot at 16 times. Um, but by the grace of God or the universe, no one was injured. And so she like came out of that unscathed. And so she and her family um, evacuated the county that the next day to avoid another, retor- uh, another retaliatory um, run in with the Ku Klux Klan. And so that December, Fanny returned to her hometown um, and she went back to the Indianola courthouse to take the, to take that literacy test again. And so once again, this is a woman who was so literate that she could be a bookkeeper, but whatever. Um, but this test was so purposefully dis- difficult that even again, after taking it once, she failed again. And s- Question. Yeah. So this wasn't a test that everyone was required to take, was it? No, I think only, only, I think only black people and i wouldn't be surprised if like extremely poor like white people like like the super like like i don't know undesirables you know what i mean well that's Um, what like if someone didn't want a particular person voting then they would be like oh well take this test first but like if any other citizen was given that test they would most likely fail as well Uh, yeah that's pretty that 100 percent. yeah um and so Fanny said to the registrar, you'll see me every 30 days until I pass, which you go, girl. Um, and so Fanny would later say, I guess if I had any sense, 
I'd have been a little scared. But what was the point of being scared? The only thing that they could do was kill me. And it was and it kind of seemed like they'd been trying to do that a little bit at a time since since I could remember. And so that's just like <laughs> su- such a sad like thing. Like I mean, her entire life like people have been if, literally getting in the way like so yeah if like you're like oh well the worst that can happen is it'd kill me <laughs> just imagine how bad the quality of your life oh has my to be. gosh um so um the following month in january of 1963 fanny took the literacy test once more this time she was successful and she became legally registered to vote Um, So that fall, Fanny was excited to cast her first first vote at the age of 46. Um, However, when she got to her polling place, she found out that her registration did not guarantee her the right to vote, and it meant next to nothing. Her county required that she have proof of paying two poll taxes um, for that election cycle. And so it's not like you can pay a poll tax like once in your life and now you have a receipt to show. Like you have to pay two poll taxes every election cycle and so if there are two cycles that year that's four taxes um and we're talking about people who get paid next to nothing um and still have to survive and you know contend with like outrageous rents and well if she didn't even know that she could vote why the heck would she be paying polling taxes exactly exactly and so um yeah so you know Putting it simply, poll taxes are just another means of voter suppression. Um, And so after her experiences of being regularly denied her constitutional right to vote and being violently intimidated to to not vote, Fanny only became more dedicated to the cause and um, started to become more involved with the SNCC. She she attended and taught classes at the Southern Christian Leadership Conferences, um, or the SCLC. Just start saying Um, random letters of the alphabet. We understand what you mean. Um, Yeah, so uh, uh, the SCLC. And so she gathered signatures for um, petitions, and she... um, Wait, so yeah, she gathered signatures for petitions attempting to to secure federal resources to help black families in the South. And so, um, you know, part of like one rationale for this is like, well, if we can get federal resources to help these people survive, then they'll have more resources to pay these ridiculous poll taxes. Um, and she also became a field secretary for voter registration and welfare programs for the SNCC. Um, And so after becoming a field secretary, uh, Fanny traveled to a Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, regarding voting rights being held in Charleston, South Carolina by bus alongside other activists fighting the good fight in June of 1963. On the way, they stopped in Winona, Mississippi for a break and some of the members of the group went to a local cafe um of course it was a whites only cafe and so they were refused service a local police officer showed up on the scene and started waving his baton around to intimidate the group of black activists into leaving and so as they were leaving one of the uh, members attempted to take down the police officer's license plate number and at that point the police officer and the police chief decided to arrest them all and so 
But the entire time, like, while this was going on, Fanny was actually on the bus. So she never even got off of the bus um, until the commotion started. And so that's when she got off of the bus just to see what was happening. Um, And she, as she was getting back on the bus, for whatever reason, officers decided to arrest Fanny too. Um, And so I think pretty much in addition to these are black people who are in, um, who were in a, you know, local white cafe, um, like seeing that there were activists um, and possibly finding out that they're on their way to like a voting rights, like conference, like kind of made these like officers become like enraged almost. Um, Snowflakes. And s- all of them. <laughs> Snowflakes. So sensitive. Um, and so once they all arrived at the jailhouse, and so this kind of gets a little heavy. And so if you guys want to click that, you know, 15 second forward button, I understand. But um, so once they all arrived in the jailhouse, the other members of Fanny's group were beaten. Um, among those beaten included a 15-year-old black girl for not saying sir to the officers. Um, keep in mind that I read the transcript of like what was said, and they called her the N-word um, with, the ni- with a nice hard ER about 15 times in that exchange. So I don't know why I'd be calling you sir. Um, but whatever uh yeah Um, also like why this is something that frustrates me even to this day which it is law enforcement's job to you know even if someone is being incredibly disrespectful to be professional because you are being paid to be there while that other person is not. And, like, you have had training on how to manage this situation while the other person is not. Like, from anyone who's worked retail in their life, like, (laughs) we've all had to, you know, hold our tongues while people have told us how stupid we are or, like, and, like, (laughs) granted, when most people, or not, maybe not most people, but, like, a lot of people who work retail are, like, under the age of 18 and we somehow manage to, you know take it so why this is your literal job to be professional so why do you need to be like you know like why do people have to say sir or why are people expected yeah like we're also we're it's not like she was like you you know big old baboon like she just didn't say sir yeah so one i don't consider that disrespectful so mm, suck a nut sorry (laughs) (laughs) um and like Second, it is not illegal to be disrespectful. And like, even now in 2020, like when we see these cases of like police brutality, it's like, "Mm, I didn't like the way they started walking away from me. So I'm going to shoot them in the back. It is not illegal to be disrespectful. Like you as a, as a human being, the unfortunate reality of our world is that you are not entitled to respect as nice as it, as nice as it would be if we all could respect each other. You're not owed it. Like, or- just because I'm not being polite does not mean you have a right to, like, infringe upon my, like, autonomy or my, or attack my personhood. Right. Or, like, so- we work in the mental health profession. We are taught, and especially throughout grad school, you may end up working with people who have been through a lot of trauma or who have a different understanding of the world. So they may not always be 
respectful or, you know, they may be outright mean to you, um, which has happened with clients before, you know, clients that I've been, you know, close with. Uh, I've worked with adolescents in the past. So, um, you know, I've had every insult hurled at me that you can possibly think of along with, you know, everyone else who worked there. Um, they had to deal with um, so many things like being on the end of violence, but they were, we were all trained to, um, you know, restrain people without harming them or doing the least harm possible. Um, and if people were, if kids were like saying horrible things to us, you also have to have an understanding that it's usually not personal and that it's something that, you know, people are just going through hard times. So if regular citizens can, uh, somehow manage to get through their day with having insults hurled at them or possibly being, um, you know, physically harmed by uh, clients. I think that, you know, police with guns and training for how to manage these situations um, can figure something out. Yeah, like whatever. <laughs> I'm just like getting so annoyed with this. We, uh, but <laughs> just in my life, I feel like I've just had so many people be like outright terrible to me when I've been in a professional role and agree. Like yeah, you we just, both have you manage. Yeah, especially when we work together. <laughs> yeah, like, like ridiculous <laughs> things would happen. And it's just like to some degree, like it's a little with people who get like so incensed and like do things like this, um, or like you know these off. It's just like get over yourself. Like it's like, not personal. Chill. Like is chill. the thing is it's not like, personally directed at you. And I feel like well that's the thing with law enforcement is you're often encountering people on the worst days of their lives or the hardest time of their lives. And can't you? you know, have respect. I do have a lot of respect for law enforcement and I feel, um, you know, I, I understand that they are put in positions and, you know, maybe don't have adequate training to, to manage things. Um, but at the same time, I feel like you need to have empathy as like, you need to enter your role with empathy towards other people. It is your job to be empathetic. The person you are, you know, talking to, is not trained to handle that situation. Yeah. So I respect, or I expect and professionalism from you, but not from the other person. The other thing, like, why would somebody be happy to be in jail? Exactly. Like, like, I So when I was in middle school, I would get in trouble all the time. Like, and it was, I'd say like maybe like 10% of it was like actually deserved. But like most of it, like these teachers were just being a little like, ridiculous like once I had my backpack on my desk and apparently I got a referral like what Natalie like, you had your backpack <laughs> on your desk and like <gasps> dude the it's horror. on the floor. like chill I didn't want it to be on the floor because the floor was dirty hello um but and then like, I'd like go to the office and like 
the assistant principal would get even angrier at me because I was mad that I was there. And I'm like, and I recall saying this to you, Mr. Otero, you know who you are. (laughs) Um, I'm like, why would I be happy to be here? Like, why are you expecting me to like be in a good mood about the fact that I was kicked out of class in front of my friends and humiliated and now I'm getting in trouble? Like, why? Oh my God. That makes me think of my mom. (laughs) Like my mom, she like, and this is like children, I feel like. Also, that's like a whole other department of like not being able to to manage their emotions well. And like mm-hmm. even as an adult, I still do this. But like so my if my mom's like as a child, my mom be like, Rachel, take out the trash. And I'd be like, oh, fine mother. And I'd like get up to go take out the trash, but then she would lecture me for like 30 minutes for having a bad attitude. And I'm like, Well, do you want me to take the trash out? Because I'm not gonna be happy about it, but I'm gonna yeah, I'm do like- it. Why does my attitude matter? That's like, like what you wanted got done. Like, let me feel how I feel. Even to this <laughs> day, like if Evan's like, oh, can you take the trash out? I'm like, I guess. Oh, God. <laughs> I, like, fortunately, in our household, I never do that. <laughs> I, that is not my thing. Um, okay. Back got to really off track. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. I, I enjoy the conversation. Um, and so... Um, where was I? So Fanny, on the other hand, was taken to a cell where a state trooper ordered two other inmates to beat her using a baton. And so police made sure Fanny was held down the entire time so she could feel the full force of the attack. The the beating was almost fatal. When Fanny screamed out in pain, she was only beaten harder. Um, If this wasn't enough torture, Fanny was repeatedly groped by the officers. Fanny recalled that one of that when she tried to resist the groping, an officer, quote, walked over, took my dress, pulled it up over my shoulders, leaving my body exposed to five men. And so just think about not we're not even just talking about the physical cruelty. The physical cruelty is already like, you know, on a scale of one to ten, we're at like about thirty eight billion, you know, mm-hmm. but the emotional and like psychological like torture of something like that like to just be not only are you being told like your body doesn't matter like like we can beat you but like here we can like humiliate you and just i don't know like i would not be okay it's just it's like rubbing salt in a wound it's just very hard to hear that not only did you have to to beat i feel like as women there's just this added layer of you know not only being physically beaten but you know our bodies are you know policed so much and like Mm -hmm. being exposed in that like if you took off a man's shirt it would not be the same as exposing a woman in that sense and clearly they were doing it with terrible intentions the other thing is like if you um just kind of think back to like what slavery was and so obviously this is well after um enslavement um the black body was community property right Mm -hmm. the black body did not belong to the person like it was like you are like black women were probably what the most profitable um like i guess product that you could have because they could breed more slaves and so like these were women who like were being used not only for their physical labor but their literal labor Mm -hmm. and just like their bot like i don't know i'm just getting very annoyed and mad so going on so um one of the other activists a teenager was beaten stripped and stomped on 
A third member was beaten so severely that she was unable to speak. An activist who was not arrested at the cafe came to the jailhouse the next day to see if anything could be done to, to secure the release of his unlawfully arrested comrades. Didn't know that we were going to talk about comrades earlier because oh, I wrote it in the script. wow. Um, Full circle, guys. Um, and so... <laughs> and so officers responded by beating him until his eyes were swollen shut. This is a man who just came to be like, hey, you arrested these people. What's the bail? Like, how do I get these people out? Um, so, yeah, good job, Mississippi. Um, and so Fanny was finally released on June 12th, 1963. Despite taking a month to recuperate from the beatings, Fanny never fully recovered. Um, she had a permanent blood clot over her left eye and um, had permanent kidney damage. Um, this did not deter, deter her from her mission, though. She went on to organize several voter registration drives later that same year. In, in 1964, Fanny co-founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, or the MFDP. Um, this was an effort to prevent regional all-white Democratic Party attempts to stifle African-American voices. Um, in addition, it was a party that did not exploit or discriminate against anyone, especially Black people. And so... Um, at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, Fanny gave a televised testimony demanding her party be given formal delegation seats. Um, one of the things, just like a quote from um, her televised testimony, um, all of this is on the account that we want to register to become first class. All of this is on the account that we want to register to become first class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off the hooks because our lives are threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? And so, I don't know, this, um, it is some it speaks truths to some of the experiences of black americans today and so mm -hmm. it just echoes a lot to me um and so um it, it wasn't until 1968 so four years later that the mfdp was finally seated uh the democratic party adopted a, um and this only happened after the democratic party adopted a clause that demanded equality of representation from their state's delegations um and so like think about like the, so fanny was a big part of this like she found she co-founded it she gave a speech at the 1964 dnc but it wasn't until 1972 that she was actually elected as like the actual party delegate which i think is like yeah, so wow. ridiculous and silly but whatever um maybe she had other things going on or maybe hopefully it was it her was, choice but yeah who knows um and so much like her life before this point, Fanny continued to live a truly remarkable life in the face of systematic racism and oppression of Black people living in the United States. Um, so, for example, in spite of everything, she actually became a doctor of law, um, and she also went on to be awarded several honorary degrees. Um, and I wish I had time to go over her entire life story um, because, like, there's just so much to it. And, like, this woman, so incredible. I'm, like, to be honest, I 
never even heard of her um, until very recently. And so it's just shocking that somebody who did so much for this cause, like we don't learn about ever, but our history um, uh, curriculums are flawed severely anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so unfortunately, Fanny died at the age of 59 after, su- after suffering from complications from hypertension and breast cancer. Mm. Um, her tombstone is engraved with one of her favorite quote or one of her famous quotes. Um, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. And in 1993, she was posthumously didn't you have trouble saying that word last week? I probably said posthumously something. <laughs> um, posthumously um, inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And so, I don't know, I just really encourage everybody to look her up and familiar, familiarize yourself with um, what she and her colleagues um, did just not only for voting rights um, and the civil rights um, amendment, but just like for the black community as a whole. Um, I just think that it's really important to like really understand like, you know, we talk about Jim Crow, we talk about, you know, these like different things in, you know, very like simple terms, but like really seeing like the true magnitude of the brutality that some of these people had to experience and then kind of compare that to what's going on today. Of Um, course. And I feel like in regards to our education now and it's it's like the same with women the same with the black community of you're right they just give kind of like the sprinkling of like oh this is when women were given the right to vote and then there was never sexism again and it's like yeah same thing like oh uh you know uh black people were allowed to to be in the same schools as white people and then uh schools were never you know segregated again um or yeah did I say that right? Never yeah. segregated. Um, oh, you, Nat, I don't know if, uh, something that's a very good listen, just makes me think of this, is uh, Nice White Parents. It's a podcast series about um, the schools in New York and how they are very much divided by race. And it's um, very interesting because you can kind of pick and choose what school you go to. to. So um, it just, like, even though they new york city lights to think of themselves as like very progressive it's like well your school system is like messed up and it's like worse than other places um in terms of uh like diversity so kind of i think i think i've listened i don't know if it was you or emily who told me about that but i i think i've listened um which yeah definitely i don't think it was me but good good for emily if she's listening to it too we can have like Uh, a a book club about it or something (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah so i don't know uh just kind of like on the backs of like where we where we are today um and sorry to get like too in to the times of what we're what's we're going through but like it's heartbreaking that like here we are in 2020 like decades and decades later and we're still fighting against rampant voter suppression and intimidation Mm -hmm. um like Like it's happening live during this podcast recording yeah like there um what was it like a lot like a few days ago um like a group of like black people were marching to the polls and they were met with like like what um tear like not tear gas but like uh what's it called like mace and like hoses and were arrested like just a few days ago like like for going to vote like they were not doing anything wrong like Mm -hmm. they were you know they were 
protesters, but they were like going to vote. Like I don't understand, but um, it's so disappointing. Yeah, you know, and just like you know, for me personally, like speaking as a black woman, like thinking about like what all of these people like did before, like before us, and looking at like where we are now, like it just feels like we have not. Like the like the United States has like has done them a disservice and almost like right. their like sacrifices like were in vain and I I just hope that um, things really do change and that the lives of Black people are valued in a like true way and that we have um, you know we we. Uh, we have a leader that does not um, co-sign hatred and violence against anyone. I look forward to that day. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, we're really just asking for the bare minimum at this point. <laughs> like, just don't be yeah. openly racist, please. <laughs> openly racist or sexist or, you know. Or, you know, like, don't be it at all. Like, why? What's, like, you know, let's disagree on healthcare. Let's disagree on, you know, abortion, whatever. But, like... What is it about my personhood that bothers you so much? I don't know. <laughs> like, come on. I don't <laughs> Whatever. know. Uh, anyway, so both of our cases, I think, were, I don't know. I just think both of these women were, like, basically, like, superheroes. It was fun. You know? It was, like, a journey. But I'm glad that I took the deep dive and learned more about Susan B. Anthony. And I'm glad that I heard, you know, your case fanny what's her last name i'm so sorry i already forgot um fanny lou hamer hamer fanny lou hamer i yeah it's shocking it's like why didn't we also learn about that in school why was that you know why was it all just like white dude after white dude after white dude after white dude um yeah it's and we also like tend to hear like the like nicer the prettier part right like oh there's a march on washington oh you know martin luther king was jailed and he wrote like this letter from the montgomery jail or the birmingham jail like and it's like oh like the what a peaceful nice thing but like you don't really hear about like the nitty-gritty of like right the dark side of it and so it's disappointing and like even like the susan b anthony stuff i I think the first time I really got deep into it was, like, my women's studies class mm-hmm. in college. And it was because we watched that movie. What movie? Like the, the, suffra- the Suffragette or something. What? Like that. Suffragette? Suff- was and it, like, a, a drama movie? I don't, think, I don't even think it's, like, Susan B. Anthony. It might be, like, Alice Paul, who's the person that they um, focus on. But I, I do think they have, like, Elizabeth Cady Stanton in it. Okay. But um, it's a good, let me, Suffragette. Yeah, it's it um, came out in 2015. No, I think you should tell me the wrong name, and then I watch an entirely different movie. <laughs> okay, so it's called The Suffragist. <laughs> um, I'll never Helena live Bonham that Carter. down. It has Helena Bonham oh, Carter cool. and Meryl Streep in it. So. Meryl Streep, okay. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. 
We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.